Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the event horizon where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Every week, the event horizon features writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. Can I say that again? Each week... (laughs) No, we can't. Each week... (laughs) I'm sorry. Each week, the Event Horizon features writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. I am your host, Gene Turnbow, founder and station manager of Krypton Radio, and with me is Susan Fox, the station's executive producer. Hello. This evening, our special guest is none other than Dr. Rebecca Housel, the pop culture professor. She is an author and editor listed in the Directory of American Poets and Writers. She's a sponsored member of the National Association of Science Writers, and she is known for her prose in popular culture, philosophy, film, medical humanities, and young adult middle grade fiction. Uh, She's a feminist author and social theorist of some influence. She travels all over the country doing conventions and has written a very large, impressive stack of books. Dr. Housel, welcome to the show. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm so happy to be here. And we're pretty tickled to have you with us, to be honest. We're feeling smarter already. Yay. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) You do quite a lot of work in bringing awareness of popular culture to, uh, to the people who read the stuff. You know, just sort of dismantle it and show us the nuts and bolts. Yeah, that's exactly what I do in the book series, the Pop Culture and Philosophy book series, which is through Wiley. And I'm also doing that in my own book series, which is coming out next year, called The Pop Culture Professor. Um, And ultimately, I think that pop culture is a way for people to learn and gain more knowledge. And, And what better way than through things like comics and superheroes and the supernatural, vampires, zombies, and werewolves oh my i mean you know this is this is the stuff that we all have our little iphones and smartphones and ipads and whatever other eye technology you have and that's why you have it because you want to you want to access that more quickly and it's just awesome so i'm really excited i love it and it's it's just cool it's a cool thing to work in also you know i was just talking to a friend of mine scott vigway whose pen name is dr geek (laughs) <laughs> his thing is science 
from fiction. And uh, he's, he's going to be working with Krypton Radio in the coming months. And he and I were talking about it, and he was appalled at how, uh, how he had posted this article about this 15-year-old kid who had figured out a really, really inexpensive way to screen for cancer that was 99.9% uh, accurate. And it got like, I don't know, 400 hits. But he posts a funny animal picture, and it's like thousands of views for this funny animal picture. We need it, to have a funny animal discover a cure for cancer. That's how it, that, see, that's how it'll work. <laughs> no, it's just, it's, uh, you can't, you can't just take them the good stuff. You have to wrap it in pop culture or it gets ignored. That's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. And my tagline is knowledge through pop culture, because that's really, I do that in the classroom too. I'm, a, I'm an actual professor in real life as well. And for years, even though my colleagues really kind of made fun of me when I first did it, I'm Apparently, I didn't know this until Thomas Wagner, the Emmy-winning director who did the Lucia Ball documentary for PBS, American mm, mm-hmm. Master Series, he interviewed me for a documentary on superheroes, and he actually told me something I didn't know, that I was the first female scholar in the States to actually focus on comics. Really? And apparently, I didn't even know that until Tom told me, so it's, it's kind of cool um, and I've been literally using, I've been in the classroom for 18 years. I've been using comics in the classroom for 18 years, long before it became popular in Hollywood to, to sort of produce these crazy franchises over and over again. I mean, how many different times have Spider-Man been recreated now, Superman? <laughs> oh, if I see another origin story, I'm going to cry. <laughs> That'll be next month, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> We know, Planet Krypton, boom. Okay, just go. Let's go. Let's do something else. How many different actors in Hollywood are gonna play Superman? That's what I'd like to know. And how can I how can I get in on the action? <laughs> I don't think you have the look for Superman. I don't know. Lois Lang maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't I don't yeah. I think you're too short for the role. Hey. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. <laughs> The, oh, that's too it, funny, guys. So I'm like, I'm so excited because actually some of these celebrities who play these parts, I work with through Wizard World's Comic Cons. Um, we go all over the country. Uh, in fact, next weekend we'll be in Philly, and at the end of June we'll be in New York City, uh, which is good because I happen to be there now. And, um, you know, and then, then Chicago in August, and we just have all these different dates throughout the year. And uh, I think that coming up this weekend... You are probably familiar with James Marsters, who plays uh, Spike. Spike. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you see, no one else could play Spike. No. <laughs> we are never going to recast that role. Definitely. That is his own. Yeah. No. That he really, and that was supposed to be a very short-lived part, by the way. Joss Whedon wanted him dead. Huh. The only reason why. He... <laughs> <laughs> And he tells this great story about how Joss actually backed him up against the wall and pointed a finger in his chest and said, you are dead, 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 do you hear me? Dead, because the audience really wanted Spike to, to live. And so Joss Whedon, you know, the, was really sort of pinned against the wall himself by, by you know, <laughs> the producers and all the people who wanted Spike to stay on because they were getting advertisers. They were actually, he was making them money. And so... <laughs> And so then he ended up on the Angel spinoff for the same reason, and, you know, Joss was out of his mind. I mean, he loves James, but he wanted, Joss believes that vampires have to die because they represent some part of our 
you know, kind of teen psyche that has to be killed off in order for us to develop and grow. Or so. <laughs> it has to develop and grow, and Spike was allowed to do that. So, I mean, Certainly. he was still kind of a jerk, but but he oh, was a I jerk don't... with a soul, and there we are. Well, either that or you end up with something like Twilight, oh. which just never grows up. It's just, it's uh, it's an adolescent fantasy. It never grows beyond that, and uh, and you get sparkly vampires. Well, she has certain views about that. <laughs> What are your That's views a good about point, actually. The what are Twilight, your views on right, Twilight? It's like arrested development, isn't it? It kind um, of is. Yeah, and, and that really has to do more with um, the post-9-11 sort of social attitude that occurred because 9-11 really shook the foundations of not just America but the Western world. Um, Stephanie Meyer just happened to hit it at the right time. When she wrote that book, it was literally just a few years after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so... The, the basically the monsters were now the humans so so the actual monsters had to become the heroes uh, and we see that throughout that first decade of the 21st century and then it's sort of a switch was flipped after the 9-11 um, anniversary occurred the 10-year anniversary occurred all of a sudden shows like True Blood where you have the southern gentleman vampire next door and Bill Compton and the tamed Viking, three, you know, one thousand year old Viking. All of a sudden, you know, everybody's becoming a lot more visceral. You're getting Colin Farrell's *Fright Night*, Thirty Days of Night*, and all these like really crazy um, fang. The fangs are back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're dangerous again. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's, it's uh, they've they've struck a, lo- a new blow for fangdom. Oh. <laughs> so Charlene Harris has just wrapped up the series in uh, Dead what? Ever After in the book series, which is an entirely different universe from the TV series. Well, I mean, it mimics, you know, the first few seasons, I think, of True Blood really sort of tried at least to follow. It did take its own special path. I think the first season you could recognize from the book, but I tried to watch, like, one episode of the fourth season was hopelessly confused. Oh, yeah, that then yeah. they... They, they were way off the ranch by that point. You're totally right. They did and Miss Harris to... seems to be okay with it. Okay, you know, as long as they're paying her. <laughs> oh, that's that's it. I mean, L. Jane Smith has the same situation with Vampire Diaries. In fact, she's no mm. longer associated with the show because she wasn't. You know, she she's the author of that. And those books came out in the early 1990s, long before Stephanie Meyer created these sparkly vegetarian vampires who can walk around in the daylight and marry young women and have sex with them and, and have babies with them. L. Jane Smith was doing that 13 or 14 years earlier, um, of course, based off of um, Anne Rice's original novel, Interview with a Vampire, from 1976. Mm-hmm. And that was adapted to film in 1994 with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. So, was you know, surprisingly had... good. Even Anne Rice decided, she, you know, retroactively that she really liked it. And she did, was not hopeful about, you know, Tom Cruise. Well, this really uh, brings up an interesting point, which is that uh, the modern narrative, the modern mythology, has sort of done a pivot uh, in the last, uh, you know, in the last 20 years. And, exactly. Uh, several pivots. Well, it, it's done several, but th- this is a major one. And uh, we seem to be reaching down into our uh, more visceral selves uh, for the answers on who we are as a people. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 that's right. I, I think the superhero, uh, the 
fascination with superheroes and vampires and mythological creatures sort of reaches out to this. We need a hero, that's for sure. Exactly, that's exactly it. We do need a hero. Um, and, and these venues really allow us to to find that, that super strength that we needed to say stop the 9-11 event or stop any of the horrific events that have occurred in the last year alone. When you think about the Batman premiere in Aurora, Colorado, or oh Andy Hook in, in New York, this is why supernatural superheroes are so popular, because these absolutely insane things continue to happen, because humans are, in fact, the monsters, and so we need the monsters to now be our heroes. The other thing that bothers me about the the modern attitude, if you will, uh, is that we seem to be suffering from a wave of anti-intellectualism. <laughs> you know, that has to do a lot with technology, actually, and I know that your background is in computers, so I apologize in advance. I well, love that's okay. as much as the next person. But oh, thank com- you, Computers are an extension, <laughs> not, not the reality. So... But it it has had a profound effect on how we perceive ourselves. It really has. It's it's essentially that idea of I was referring to the eye technology earlier. That's basically an evolution of postmodernism. The postmodern attitude, of course, being that every individual has is is equally valid and valuable um, through your own unique experiences everything from your birth order to your gender to the spacing of your eyes to your parents' backgrounds to where you grew up to your theology, all of that adds to your uniqueness. And, and you don't have to earn it anymore. You just are. You're just valid because you exist. And so there's this sense of instant gratification which technology feeds into. So why should you read a book? Why should you go to the gym, for example, and actually gain muscle to be strong when somebody can just bite you in the neck and you can become instantly strong. <laughs> well, it's the... because they can't <laughs> in reality. Right. But that's where the, the line is sort of become blurred with all of the technology sort of bringing you these stories. I think that lack of intellectualism or the la- you know, not that it, there's a lack of it, but just generally that people don't want to try very hard really has more to do with the fact that they don't have to that they can escape any time they want into fiction world, fantasy land. Um, and, you know, I'm right there with them, frankly. I've got three screens working right now. Yeah. And we've got two. <laughs> and they're pretty crowded. Yeah. We really need three. Uh, I think so. <laughs> so there's, there I think, two things at work here. One of them is, is that... Uh, uh, we are trying to get closer to our um, our archetypes. Uh, Joseph Campbell, for example, was the uh, was the champion of this. He was the pop culture archetype guy. Yeah, he was. He pretty much <laughs> defined that term for us. And then the other thing that's happening is that so much information is available so fast that nobody has time to cross check any of it. Or if they do cross check it, they cross check it against sources they can't trust and don't realize the fact. And so myth is accepted as fact, and before you know it, you have um, you have people sort of wandering off off the map. Uh, we had, uh, I, and I won't get into details, but we've got a politician out there right now who is convinced that President Obama has has been manipulating the weather using weather machines. <laughs> 
to attack. Have you read this? Have you read about this? I'm just surprised you brought it up. I I thought that was an Onion article. Yeah, so did I. But they were serious. I mean, this guy, I mean, and and here we are. I mean, this is a classic. uh, I'm bringing it up because it ties directly into the conversation. It does, Uh, actually, yes. You know, the, the modern mythology is starting to crowd out factual information and it's yeah, becoming almost more important than fact <laughs> you know who who really wrapped that whole idea up in a wonderful nutshell jean baudrillard who was uh, also a social theorist and he unfortunately died in 2007 mm. but he coined you know he coined the terms virtual reality and simulacra ah. what you're referring to is the simulacra so that idea that um our president has some sort of magical powers and is, you know, doing, doing something where he can actually control the weather uh, is sort of the influence of simulacra, similar to, um, uh-huh. you know, I, I'm, I always use this example actually in class where, with, with Bruce Almighty, the film with, with um, mm-hmm. Jim Cameron and Jennifer Aniston, and you see a preschool teacher and a local cable channel weather guy in this fantastic apartment that is totally decked out in pottery barn everything. It's like perfectly decorated. You know, it's probably $8,000 plus a room, yet their salaries together probably don't add up to $40,000 in real life. Her hair is perfect, perfectly, Mm -hmm. you know, highlighted. Her makeup is perfect. Her clothes are amazing. Her body is amazing. All the things that actually require real money, which you don't make as a preschool teacher. And so I have just all these students, actually, who are looking at these jobs that will not make them any money because they see on in the movies that this is possible. I think that it was, um, well, I forget the author, but Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs is the name of the book. <laughs> Have yeah. you read the book? No, I haven't, really I haven't heard of this book before. Everybody who sort of like grew up in my generation, so if you were a teenager in the 80s, if you were a woman, you were in love with John Cusack. And uh-huh. your expectation, of course, was that John Cusack would be standing outside of your house or your apartment or wherever you live with a stereo in his arms, you know, and uh-huh. just basically wooing you from outside of your window. And it, when, when that doesn't happen and when it do- continues not to happen, that's what uh, this author claims has to do with the divorce rate in America because, you know, all the women in America right now who are married are actually in love with somebody who's not real. And so yeah, but does it, is that new? I mean, in the fifties, it might have been Rock Hudson. I mean, there I, were, it's not like romantic, unrealistic romantic images are new. No, that's not new. That's true. But uh, I think that it has more to do with the fact that that in the fifties, you didn't have. It wasn't as accessible today um, because of eye technology. The t- our TVs have are now have now have apps on them, and you can watch Netflix. And movies mm-hmm. are totally accessible to everybody, even if you can't pay a movie ticket. Um, so it's a, it's we are definitely overexposed, I think, to popular culture. You know, which is good in some ways, but in other ways, it influences the way we perceive the world, and that can be a little dangerous. So we have a responsibility as keepers of the popular culture to try to keep things as close to the straight and narrow as we can. Boom. That's exactly what I, that's my purpose totally and completely. You just summed it up perfectly. Okay. Well, this has been the event horizon. No, no, no. I think we got more to talk. Yeah. (laughs) 
So what got you started on this path in the first place? And uh, how long did your journey take? So I think like a lot of us, um, I sort of grew up uh, watching Bela Lugosi, black and white movies. Um, of course, huge Star Trek fan, Doctor Who fan. I love comic books, even though I was a girl, which at, ta- at that in that decade, I was definitely born in the wrong decade because in that decade, it was totally uncool to have been me. I mean, I was running around like Tarzan, you know, without a shirt on, which I realized after age nine became, instead of shirtless, it became topless and was a problem. Mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, you know, I sort of, I, I lived, I lived these dreams. And of course, comic books represented all these terrific heroes, mostly male, except for X-Men, which had a lot of female uh, heroes for me to kind of use as role models. I just couldn't stand the Disney princesses. I mean, I wasn't that kind of chick. You know, I didn't want to run around in pink frilly dresses all day and little crowns with high heels on looking for a prince to save me. I wanted to do the saving. I wanted to be the one with the sword. And so that's really where it started for me. And uh, ultimately, I learned um, as I became, get gone into education and became a teacher, how no matter who it was, whether they spoke English as a second language or had a learning disability or were an adult learner, non-traditional learner, no matter who it was or where they came from or what their perspective was or the most brilliant student on the planet, everybody could relate to popular culture and so everybody could write. And they could write really well because it was something they were interested in. Um, and that and that really just sort of, that brought everything together for me. <laughs> I thought, you know, this is fantastic. I'm going to use what I love in the classroom instead of just using, I, I mean, I love Shakespeare. I love Hemingway. I, I love literature. I studied, you know, 10,000 years worth of literature, and I, I love it. But not everybody does, and not everybody is a writer. Um, but, but students must learn how to write in college. That's what I'm supposed to do to help them. And so instead of saying to them, here, read these Shakespearean plays and write about it, even though you don't like it, find something you like somehow, some way, I said, okay, let's, let's read this play, and then let's take a look at this graphic novel, because there's a lot of similar themes here, um, and maybe, you know, we can talk about how these two things are related, or, you know, um, let's, let's take a look at this movie, this film adaptation, and let's see if it follows Joseph Campbell's hero cycle, because that's in everything, and we know it's in everything, because it's been in everything since people have been painting on Paleolithic cave walls in Spain, you know? So um, that it really sort of worked to my advantage, and, and, and ultimately I began writing and researching in the area so that I could continue to use it in the classroom and help students basically learn how to write better. So when did you start? Uh, when did you uh, start deconstructing uh, Joseph Campbell and applying it to uh, to popular culture? I mean, er, let me start that question over. Okay, <laughs> I'm not sure that that's that's Joseph I Campbell got that the, the wrong I got the wrong all, I got that the wrong direction. Well, I really I have to say I love I love Joseph Campbell, and um, as a literature student, I I worked with him. I mean, I had. I had read all of his books in the in the 1990s, you know, and and started writing books then, and started to uh, really develop ideas. Which a few years later, essentially in the early 2000s, I I had started to write for Wiley's. Um, well, it wasn't Wiley at the time; it was a different publisher. 
when I began writing for this book series, the Popular Culture and Philosophy book series. And I wrote chapters on poker, on Monty Python, on superheroes, which you referred to earlier, on X-Men and things like that. And so I would say that the scholarship began in the 1990s, looking at Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung, who of course Joseph Campbell uses his archetypes and his idea of the collective unconscious uh, in the archetypes there that are, you know, I guess Time Magazine, I think it was a 2005 article called it the God Gene, where we all sort of have this uh, pre-programming in our, in our brains to, to think of something bigger than us is out there. Um, and ultimately the idea that, um, and you see it in popular culture today, the idea that uh, we are humans trying to reclaim a savage world. Um, and, and that's basically what our superheroes and supernatural superheroes are doing for us since we have proven to be inadequate in the real world. Are we reclaiming the savage world or are we trying to return to it? I mean, I, is, is it a control issue or a, an attempt to return home? Well, if you were to look at Isaac Marion's Warm Bodies, well, his, that, his, his novel is Warm Bodies, and then the adaptation that came out in February, Warm Bodies, the film, with Nicholas Holt, you can see an attempt to reclaim uh, that sense that, oh, we're just a bunch of zombies wandering around. Technology has actually isolated us from each other. That's, that's Isaac Marion's premise. Um, and and all, it, all it takes now for us to reclaim our humanity and our heroism is to put down the technology and connect on a personal level. Once a zombie connected with a human in a real way and didn't try to eat their brains, say, for example, if we don't try to eat each other and we really actually try to connect, look at what can happen. The zombie's heart started again. He actually came back to life. I mean, uh, that's sort of a, a, a symbol of, I think, that post-9-11, um, 10th anniversary, now we're at that point where we're ready to reclaim our humanity. So the, the monsters are becoming monsters again, and the humans are trying anyway to become heroes. It's going to be different for World War Z, because um, World War Z is a book by Max Brooks, which came out, um, I think, in 2003. And Brad Pitt is a big part of that project, and the movie comes out in June. It was scheduled to come out actually last year, and that it had to be pushed back for a number of reasons. And that has more of a, because of when, when Max wrote that book, that has more of a, uh, the zombies are more like terrorists, basically. Mindless, hungry, just if you, if you can get infected by them and basically become like them, and, and then you, you hurt everybody around you. Um, and so it sort of has that, a different twist to it than, than Isaac Marion's Warm Bodies, uh, which is definitely leaning more toward humanity and reclaiming uh, our humanity, essentially. We want to become the heroes again. We want to be human uh, again and humane, um, or at least most of us do. So, <laughs> Well, the zombies in uh, World War Z are very much like, um, well, they're just part of the swarm. You know, and, and, right. and you you lose your you lose your identity when that happens. You lose your individuality. And watching the trailer, I haven't of course seen the film yet, but uh, uh, watching the trailer, their their behavior is frenetic and frantic and very very fast and very very uniform. I, I and I'm sure this is part of uh, partly due to the fact that they're you know they're obviously all computer generated creatures and a great deal of programming and care has gone into the 
uh, programming of their motions as sort of a combination of crowd behavior and fluid dynamics, if you will. Uh, but uh, I do get the very strong sense that they are just sort of, they become particles of, of uh, in a wave. Well, they're, they're in, they're dehumanized. And I yeah, think they're completely that's, dehumanized. That's the and, point. And the loss of, uh, the loss of that humanity in the contrast. I mean, that's sort of an underscoring, th- um, that unders- underscores the theme uh, of, of uh, popular culture and, and our own attempt to remember who we are. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's exactly right. And we saw something similar in the uh, Will Smith adaptation, um, I Am Legend, mm-hmm. of the original, um, I think that was a uh, Richard Matheson That's 1950s right. novel. Uh-huh. That novel actually inspired George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, even though in the original novel, the, the new evolution of people was actually more like vampires. Um, so okay. that sort of... Well, that, there was the... Um... Vincent Price movie, The Last Man on Earth, which, which was, was more specifically derived and credited mm-hmm. as being, you know, from I Am Legend. And then there was The Omega Man, which was also credited. So so that's sort of an interesting diversion of uh, the uh, descent of this novel, isn't it? It, it really is. Um, and, it, and, and prior to, um, speaking of zombies, prior to Matheson's novel, in 19, I think it was 26, William Seabrook's The Magical Island was the first time the word zombie, except spelled D-O-M-B-I, kind of came out um, and was part now part of the vernacular thanks to that, that book. And then um, I think it was a year later, 1932, Bela Lugosi played, um, was in the film White Zombie a year after he was Dracula, which is very apropos because, of course, zombies come from vampires. Uh, thanks to Matheson. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, they're close, closely related. One is one is more active, or one is more intelligent. Or how would you look at that? Yeah, I would say they're both they're both dead. <laughs> they're both pred- predators. Yeah, they're predators both of humanity. dead essentially, and uh, you know, one uh, is is sort of much more um, essentially more human. You know, vampires are really just an expression of our our humanity. Um, our our fear of death, uh, whereas zombies, it's more like uh, it's more like what Max Brooks has portrayed in his book and and now in the film, where we're just like a, a big mass. Um, I think that 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 was a great comparison to being particles, uh, you know, like in an entanglement. You just can't see one from the other. Um, good quantum physics reference there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not so much the loss of our lives, but the loss of ourselves, that which yeah, defines individuality. us. Individuality. So let's postmodern problem, right? Yes, yes, very a very postmodern problem. Let's. uh, We've spent the last half hour talking about uh, what popular culture has done. Let's talk now about where you think popular culture might go from here. Let's project into the future a little bit. Where where do you think it will go? Where do you think? Where would you like it to go? These are not necessarily the same thing. No, it's not that it is not the same thing. You are so right about that. Um, I think that it's it's going to really be interesting to see. It's ultimately where the money is. Um, so I think that the money looks like it's heading towards sex. Things like Fifty Shades of Grey, for example, 
um, <laughs> which is which is which is an iteration of Twilight because of course Erica Leonard E. L. James, um, she was inspired by Stephanie Meyer's Twilight and she wrote she wrote uh, Master of the Universe, which is the original title of Fifty Shades of Grey as a basically a 21 year old Bella and a 30 year old Edward so it was a lot less creepy in her version rather uh yeah <laughs> uh, of course there's also things like anal beads and things like that in her version so <laughs> I don't think that would have played in Twilight so yeah. I don't think so either more's the shame but ultimately <laughs> ultimately I think that that's really where it's sort of heading um it's it's just heading more and more toward, uh, you know, sort of sexualized um, versions of vampires and uh, werewolves and and the zombies. Even in even in Isaac Marion's Warm Bodies, that ha- that was all about a relationship. It was a love story, right? It really was, um, and I think that's part of that movement toward us reclaiming our humanity after a decade of feeling sorry for ourselves that we couldn't stop the inevitable from happening. And of course, more and more in the last decade, more and more horrific things have happened. Um, again, like the Aurora, Colorado um, shooting, like Sandy Hook, all of these horrible things keep happening. Um, and they're going to keep happening. So I think that we're going to continue to see that movement toward trying to reclaim our humanity at least for the next five to seven years. And then we'll see where it goes from there. But monsters are never going to go out of style, especially vampires. They've been around for 10,000 years minimum. And um, I think that's just going to keep going. And as long as we have um, sort of this uh, mass mentality, uh, you know, the masses, as it were, I think that zombies are also going to continue to be popular, fairly popular. Superheroes, of course, we know. You know, anybody that looks at sort of Marvel Entertainment's uh, list of future mo- upcoming movies. We are looking at man- many, many, many more superhero films in the next decade. It's it's actually remarkable and and awesome for for fans. But I think that that's going to keep going because again, we want to be human, but sometimes we know it's not enough. And so these superheroes are all, for the most part, human. You know, with the exception of Superman and you know. A few Green Lanterns out there who are aliens. Yeah, but <laughs> like, your leads are all handsome male specimens. I- exactly, and that's you know, a, you know Wonder right? Woman. This is my argument right now: is you know they can't sell a, a female a superheroine movie. Um, <clears throat> they they couldn't get a Wonder Woman TV show or movie made. Marvel Comics has no leads, no female leads. They have members of the X-Men. We have a few members of the Avengers. Black Widow does not exactly stack up against the leads of the rest of the Avengers. Jean Grey sort of imploded, so... She's not a lead. You don't have, well, you don't have Phoenix Comics. You yeah, do have Wonder true. Woman Comics. Yep. Good point. And Good she, point. Can't, she can't get arrested, as, you know, as far as making a movie is concerned. So, well... I so mean, actually, Marvel needs move, needs lead, female leads. That's what I. Marvel say. does have. Um, they do use the Phoenix as she does have her own comic, and so does Mystique. Um, so you know they they actually do, and and things like Batgirl, for example, Gail Simone is the you know DC's primary writer for Batgirl. Oh, she's awesome. Uh, she is awesome. Yes, I worked with her in Portland um, at the Comic Con there in February. 
and she's actually writing a few new things, um, including Megalopolis and um, I think the movement, where she is developing more female characters, strong female characters, which is really great. Um, but you're right. You know what the problem is? Ultimately, and I'm sorry to your audience because this is just the truth. Uh, we live in a patriarchy that has not changed. We think it's changed, ladies, because we're like, oh, yay, in 1920, we can vote now. We, you know, 30% more female doctors since the 1970s. You mean in 40 plus years, only it's gone up only 30%? I'm sorry, but that's just unacceptable. And ultimately, we have had no, no female president, very little political leadership. There are some CEOs, there are, you know, there are some CFOs who are female, but it's such a small, small number in comparison. And, and we're quite behind in terms of the rest of the world. Almost every other country, including Pakistan, by the way, has had female leadership. Um, the States is very far behind. And if we were to look at history, uh, we, uh, Barack Obama became president in 2008, but African-American males got the right to vote in 1870. So we've still got another 50 years, ladies, before <laughs> history. I don't think it's going to take that long. I, I, I don't want to bring it, politics into it, but I hope it wouldn't. I live take in that a long. state with two two women senators, so you know I don't well, think it's going to okay. take 50 years. For I hope not. But uh, in the meantime, look at the popular culture. I mean, look at Hollywood. Why are all the females that are popular in Hollywood size zero? When the average size in America for the you know the average woman in America is a size fourteen, yes. <laughs> you know. So and why are the fat, sloppy, funny guys all getting these gorgeous women? King of Queens comes to mind immediately, but you know ultimately there's a big lopsided view in our popular culture that represents what's happening in our actual culture. There's there's very few female leaders, um, you know, in comparison comparatively to to the male leaders. So. When when you live in a patriarchy, and that ultimately means the money is coming still from men, mainly from men, you have a problem when you're trying to get, and also male writers, not that that's a problem, except when it's a problem. So we try to get Catwoman on the screen as a female hero, like you're saying, where are they? But what is she saving the world from? Face cream? Hello? I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> that well, that, I mean... Come on, a good script does not cost any more than a bad script. What the hell was that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was uh, struck by the reaction when Gail Simone was uh, laid off by DC Comics. Uh, they didn't want her to draw, to write for Batgirl anymore. And uh, it seemed that fan outcry got her her job back. There was probably other influences you know going on behind the scenes but and i i'm very glad for that but at the same time the fact that uh she was the only one underscores really the problem the the uh the tremendous imbalance uh and and the fact that uh, women are expected to be uh, to play a sort of supporting role or a victim role. They're not allowed to be as strong as the men. Uh, Marvel, a, a, a T-shirt manufacturer recently uh, had, uh, and you you know what I'm going to talk I about. I know here. what you're going to talk about. Uh, they had uh, T-shirts for little kids, and the little boys uh, said some th- shirt said something, I want to be a superhero, and the <laughs> other one said, uh, and for the little girls, I'm waiting for my superhero. Oy vey. Oy vey, Yes. <laughs> Oy vey is a nice summary, and I'm not even Yiddish. Uh, 
and so it's and and again uh this same sort of uh same sort of issue is is shown in uh Disney's Disney's fast backpedal on the the redesign of Merida. Uh right. Yeah, yeah. You, and uh for those who are listening who aren't aware of what happened, uh Disney marketing tried to glam up Merida, put her in a a a, a uh, they gave her a more bust line, a thinner waist. Uh, put gold trim on her dress. She lost the bow. She lost the wild hair, and they gave her a come hither look. And they were going to put that on. Uh, they were going to make this the new face of Merida. For what all was the, the whole first act of that show about? It was about the they did was about the that. mother tarting her up for to appeal to the boys. Yeah. No, <laughs> and and the whole all movie... the little Meridas out there said, "I don't think so." Yeah, and the whole movie was uh, Merida is the first Disney princess whose point was not to get a handsome prince. Excuse me, Mulan. Okay, Mulan. Fight me. Well, she got her <laughs> handsome prince in the sequel. <laughs> Sequels don't count. That's... Um, Belle, okay. uh, uh, Beauty and the Beast. She didn't want the man. She wanted the freaking library. I know <laughs> I wanted the library. She wanted the beast, actually, which is... Uh... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted the library. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I think, yeah, I think you're right. It's it's a really uh, twisted sort of and and the Gail Simone aspect, which I have to go back to just because it's an interesting story. She started off writing um, a blog called Women in Refrigerators, referring to a 1996, I think it was Green Lantern comic where his girlfriend was murdered and, and shoved in a refrigerator, and so ultimately Gail and a few other um, fans, male fans, started writing. And she was contacted by a major editor, I won't say who, from one of the main comic book, uh, you know, franchises there. I'm not going to tell you which one, although I'm sure you can guess. And, uh, and basically, he thought she was a man. And he said, you know, I love your pen name, Gail Simono. That's such a crazy, you know, clearly not a real name. And you're obviously male because women just don't talk like that. Huh. Uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, I hope he was humiliated. I, I hope he was embarrassed after that. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I think yes and no because obviously, like you referred to, they they gave her they gave her a hard time, and she's been doing it for twelve years, and now she'll be writing for Red Sonja, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, um, that that I think that the first one uh, might have come out. Is it the first one? Maybe I'm thinking about. Um, I might be thinking about the movement or megalopolis but i know that freddie williams the second is uh working with her on one of those two things and he said that 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 had just been released um so and red sonya is coming up and i think that she's you know she's really an important voice but as you say just one among you know a, a sea of males and that's part of the reason why because even in 1999 uh, or 2000, or whenever she was contacted by the editor, one of those two years, she was contacted by that male editor. He did not, and that's not, we're not talking about 1950, we're talking about 2000. So even though mm-hmm. the optimism that we're going to have female leadership in this country anytime soon is wonderful, I just don't think so. <laughs> I think we're looking at a minimum of 30 years, and the same thing with our with our pop culture. It's just not heading in a in a female-oriented direction anytime soon, 
even with Disney's, uh, you know, change with Brave uh, and Merida, as we were talking about before, I just don't see it really, it's not moving quickly or quickly enough um, in order to create real change so that the little girls today, now they have girl-oriented Legos, but they're still girl-oriented. So now it's okay to play with them, but they're still pink, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, if a girl wants a pink Lego, she can have one. If a girl wants the rest of the Lego, she can have that too. Yeah, but the yeah, Lego... I mean, I- I mean, if a girl wants to run around in a tutu and a and a tiara, great. You know, that's that's fine if that's what she wants. But she doesn't want it because she's been trained since birth to want yeah, it. Yeah, she's so been she imprinted. Doesn't even know when yeah. you walk into a Target or a Walmart, uh, you we're talking about you know boys versus girls clothing. You can see very clearly the girls' clothing, the little girls' clothing are pinks and. You know, pale colors and sparkles and tutu-ish type things now, I notice. Mm-hmm. And the boys are very dark colors, blues, and they have clothes that you could actually play in, whereas girls have to have these little skirts. I mean, they can wear pants, too. Now, oh, yay, thank you. We can wear pants. But, uh, you know, ultimately, we're still encouraged to wear skirts. And if you're a woman and you can't wear a dress for whatever reason or you can't wear high heels, you don't feel feminine. You have to, you know, you can't wear makeup, you know, you don't have hair on your head. We're not supposed to have hair anywhere else in our bodies, but on our head, in, you know, in volume, volume, voluminous hair on our head, but no hair anywhere else. Men, however, can be bald and no problem. Don't have to wear makeup, no problem. It is a double standard that still exists, and until that really starts to go away, we're not going to see changes in popular culture anytime soon, because those gender expectations, those performative expectations still exist. Except, well, we're not going to see uh, changes in popular culture with respect to the gender division, but I right. think we are going to see some changes in popular culture because of the new media that are available and the way they're all sort of uh, blending together in ways that weren't really possible before. On the internet, nobody knows that I don't shave my legs. Oops, they know now. <laughs> But uh, as we discussed earlier, popular mythology is is often, in some cases, being substituted for fact and research. And instead you have uh, what amounts to individualized personal religions of what people believe that's based on nothing in particular, except maybe what they saw on Facebook that day. You know, that's exactly right. And that's part of what's so um, frightening, because if you look at some of those uh, you know, extended mythologies, if you will, uh, you, you see a lot of these same themes with in terms of gender. And, and ultimately, you know, it, it is sociopolitical, even though it's a, it's a movie or a TV show or it's about a video, a song, a video game. It's still a sociopolitical statement, um, even if it's not meant to be, even if it's meant to just be fun. Um, it's fun that's being had at the expense of of uh, our cultural attitude at, toward very important topics. Uh, so, so that's part of the, uh, the continuing effort of, for people like me. <laughs> it's sort of like, you know, uh, uh, clear-cutting the rainforests, you know, to get yeah. <laughs> to, so that you can have paper napkins and toothpicks and things. Yeah, exactly. Well, patriarchy took 10,000 years to take over. You know, it may take us... Another fifty years to get is to get back. So I, I hope I hope we've not. got it. We've got I that hope, much time. 
I hope I hope you're right. I mean, ultimately, I think women are are gaining ground every day, but it's such a slow progress. I I feel like Susan B. Anthony is is definitely turning over in her grave over and over again because we are just not not picking up you know her torch in a way that I think we probably should have. But um, you know, bra burning aside in the in the seventies, <laughs> it's the men who need to have their attitudes liberated. But they can't, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and I think about, I don't know if you think about this, Susan, but I actually think about this once in a while, probably because I have a little too much testosterone. I don't know if you could tell. <laughs> but I think that if I had a penis and I were male and I were six feet tall or whatever, m- more muscle mass, I would be doing all the same things. Why would you want to change if you don't have to? If it benefits you the way things are, why would you want to change it? Um, and my son, um, you know, I'm not going to age myself too much, but just saying, I have a son who is old enough to be six foot four inches tall. Mm. And, and I'm amazed at, at the things he does growing up with a, like a serious feminist. Obviously, it's like a very big deal for me. Um, you know, and, and, and he, knows, he knows about gender roles. He knows, he knows Judith Butler. <laughs> he knows all of those types of things. He understands it, but he still... He still came home to me the other day and said, you know, how come I can't find the tannest, fakest, blondest girl in the bar and go home with her because she's going to be less complicated than one of the smart girls who I just don't want to deal with. I, 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 sit, I sat there totally floored. Like, are you really saying this to me? Are you really saying this to me? But if I were his age and I had what he has, I think I would be thinking the same thing. I mean, you know, there's a, let's there's be a lot of cultural pressure to to operate in that mode if you're male. There's he's a been lot. he's been just as programmed as the little girl with the tiara. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, and you know, and and some of that I I'm sure had to be me, uh, you know, as parents uh, influencing him, pushing him into things like sports, for example. Um, but I certainly, you know, he had no interest in anything else, but it's very possible he didn't because from the day he was born, you know, dad was watching sports, dad was playing sports. So that should be something I do too. Um, mom is not playing sports. Mom is, you know, I don't know what I was doing. I'm, I was writing probably, (laughs) uh, you know, and ultimately he's a writer as well. In fact, he co-authored the chapter in Iron Man and Philosophy. Uh, with me from 2010, um, which was a chapter, I think, about gender as well. So, you know, it's interesting uh, how these things kind of occur. I just think, ultimately, if I were male, you know, and so this is for all the men out there, I'd be doing what you're doing. I wouldn't be changing things, and I wouldn't want to, because it would not benefit me. Um, Even if I had daughters, it still wouldn't benefit me. (laughs) I'm not sure it would even benefit them. Um, so it's a really complex issue that we can't solve in one show. <laughs> what I what I find interesting is that um, that uh, science fiction and uh, and popular culture, with specifically with, with respect to you know the world of science fiction fandom, and I use the term in a very general sense because you know it's like trying to nail jelly to a tree. Uh, <laughs> You can't really define it, but everybody knows what it is. Uh, the uh, the awareness that science fiction that that fandom in general has of these issues seems to be over and above uh, the general populace, and I think uh, 
uh, I think that has something to do with the foundations and the underpinnings of our subculture. And I was wondering what you thought about that. Uh, about the underpinnings of our subculture? Or yeah, and, and how, and the, the kind of Science influence. fiction has a stronger feminist current than the general population. Well, you know, it's interesting when you were talking about that, uh, when you were forming your question, I was thinking about Doctor Who, because of course Doctor Who uh, is going to be celebrating its 50th anniversary this year in November, November and John Barrowman is one of my guests in Philly um, next weekend. Uh, I'll be with John Berriman, who was on Doctor Who. Ah, kept you, you must know him, a uh, very dishy guy, and, yes. uh, you know, Torchwood, Arrow, and uh, he, he sings. He's just this tremendous talent. Um, but you see, even in Doctor Who, who, even in Torchwood, I mean, think about this for a second. You had the Sarah Jane Chronicles, but where are they today? Sarah but, but, Jane's dead, for one thing. Uh, uh, poor, yeah. you know, Elizabeth Slayton has exactly. passed away, you know. but That's uh, my point exactly, though. But Doctor Who never dies, does he? Well, so, they, they I, that was on purpose. They, they did kind of a revolving door of actors, which was a very clever idea in the early 60s. And that's what's made it, made it work for 50 years. Incredible, but still male-oriented. You know, they didn't have a female... Why can't they make a female Doctor Who? But they wouldn't because it wouldn't sell. I don't know. I don't know, um, about, I'm, that. I don't know about that. There's there seems to be an undercurrent of people who want a, uh, a another spinoff of Doctor Who, and I think the time is is getting to be right for that. Of oh, Madame yeah. Vastra, the the Silurian lady in in uh, Victorian London, with her it her be, wife and her uh, assistant there. It would be great, and we'll see if she actually, you know, if there's any longevity to that uh, series, if it does spin off. They keep bringing uh, her back. It's it's great, but we'll see how long it lasts. I mean, ultimately, similar to female vampires, if they're not connected to a male in some way, they tend to die rather quickly. Well, I'm, I'm, we'll see. Yeah, well, I, yeah. she might, she might. You know, Sarah Jane Adventures lasted as long as the life of the, the, the lead actress, I mean, she didn't want to get cancer. It would still be on now. Uh, I know, but uh, ultimately, you know, that still could have continued, I think, had there been uh, just similar to the Doctor Who concept. I mean, not that they would have done it the same way, but they could have got another actress. They could have very Uh. easily done it the same way uh, because the Doctor Who universe relies on sort of a quasi semi-magical science. So, yeah, yes, but, she, could have done but the, the actress way. was very well loved. I don't, oh, that's I don't true, think true. they really could have done that effectively. Oh, that, yeah, I think in in that particular case, I think the, the show was sort of a character cult. Uh, yeah, I think so too. Um, but you don't see, when we're talking about things earlier, like Vampire Diaries, for example, they're doing a spin-off called The Originals, which mm-hmm. focuses on, on Nick Klaus or Klaus. Mm-hmm. Um, in New Orleans, but they don't have a spinoff for, say, Caroline, who is a terrific character and very complex. And, um, you know, she doesn't seem complex, but she actually really is. And so write when... it, pitch it to them. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, you know. I think you do a very good job. <laughs> have you thought well, about screenwriting? Well, do things like this, but ultimately nobody's buying. You know, they don't want to. Joss Whedon couldn't sell Wonder Woman, for example. Uh, you know, so... God That's... bless Joss Whedon is all I can say. He, you know, he brought Buffy to the screen in a way that, you know, oh boy. 
Oh, he's amazing. I love him, and I can't wait to see Much Ado, which is coming out uh, soon, I think, like a week from uh, There's next... There's more pop culture for you. Yes, yeah, no, that is fabulous looking. Boy, I love it. I would also like to see, you know who would be great uh, Wonder Woman for Joss Whedon and is part of his Whedonverse? Morena Baccarin. I was thinking um, Eliza Dushku. Oh, Eliza would be great. She's I short, with but she's got the, a very good look for it. She's got some breadth. She could do the, the secret identity, and she could oh, do action. Yeah. She does her own stunt work. I don't oh, know about Marina. She's amazing. I worked with her in um, Austin and New Orleans, and Marina and I worked together in Portland and St. Louis, and I think she'll be in Chicago in August. At least she's on the docket, but... Um, she just recently announced that she's expecting her first baby with Austin, her oh, husband. Congratulations so, to her. Yes, I know. It's really kind of exciting. So um, I don't know if she'll be traveling in, in August, really. But, uh, she, you know, she would be great. And like you said, she's got the height. And she has that regal sort of Amazonian look. And, of course, she's from Brazil. Uh, you know, so that's, like, even she, better. Yeah, she's got an ethnic look that would work for the Medi and obviously Mediterranean roots. But I love Eliza because she and I are both from Boston, and um, she's just an amazing actress, like you said. She's she's tr truly hardcore. She really she really does her own stunts, and and she's quite wonderful. And, and she'd be great in a lot of different roles. I love. Well, she did I, a lot of different roles just in Dollhouse. <laughs> yes, exactly. Every and week it was a completely different character, and she sold it. She she's a she's an amazing talent and I uh, you know I just keep I know that she's going to be voicing I think she's going to be voicing I think it was She Hulk there's um, an animated series uh, coming out uh, this summer that I think she is a part of oh, the uh, animated um, Marvel and DC is again so much better than it needs to be um, <laughs> big fan big fan and you and well, we were before they canceled it all. To replace it with what? Oh, oh, yeah, that's Teen right. Teen yeah, Titans. the DC, yeah, the DC universe uh, uh, on on uh, uh, on uh, what was it? It was Cartoon Network. Cartoon Network. And uh, all the big holding... kids' cartoons are gone, and they're all little kids' cartoons. Uh, people are actually holding wakes for the characters because they miss them so much. I mean, they're uh, they were really sophisticated characters and really well written, and they addressed a lot of uh, a lot of the big questions of of human nature and, and what it means to be a hero and what it means to be an intelligent life form. Yeah. What it means to be an intelligent, caring person. And, uh, However, I'm really in, sorry to see it all. Meanwhile, gone. back at, back at the, uh, straight to video, Lucy Lawless as Wonder Woman in, oh, in, in Justice League, New Frontiers. That was just my dream casting. Yeah, no, I mean, Lucy Lawless, I, I that's a great I love her so much she kicked butt as Xena and um, you know I just wish that there were more I just wish that there were more roles for, for strong female characters it's just a really sort of shallow pool <laughs> well let's write some more let's write some let's more I'm, I'm, with, I'm with you let's you've write been, some more uh... I am thinking about a creator own project uh, maybe working with Cody Chamberlain who did um, MTV's uh, Punks and um this really great New Orleans uh, crime story called Sweets, um, which I think if, if you haven't, you know, I love that whole, I love the whole area of New Orleans and I love to support them, those poor people. You mm -hmm. know, they're still not 100% back from Katrina. So, uh, you know. Hanging in there, though. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, 
So we'll see what happens, but uh, it's, it's really hard to sell these ideas is ultimately the problem. I have a million of them, but they don't all get sold. Um, in fact, very few of them do. So Don't stop. Don't I stop. won't. Don't worry. I won't stop, but it's uh, it's definitely frustrating. I'm starting to think I should just start writing for you know, the male character that I played growing up. You know, I, I could certainly do that, and I'm sure it would sell in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, you know, um, a lot of... One of the things that I've been seeing is that, um, you know, these these great works that everybody just grabs a hold of and and embraces often don't start with a bang. They start, you know, with a glimmer and uh, it's it's they start out as fan fiction sometimes or the writers start out doing fan fiction, uh, Mary Sue stories sometimes and they get. Um, they get readership that way. We have uh, uh, one of our content providers uh, who goes by the handle of Lady Soliloquy. Uh, yes, she, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. She she does these. Um, uh, she does this sort of crossover radio play drama, radio drama. Uh, you know, it's unlicensed, so she can't make any money from it. But uh, she just released one of her episodes, and she had five thousand downloads in like a day. But she's learning her craft. She's, but she, yeah, but once, she's learning her craft. She's beginning to branch out and do to her own, you know, original work, and then watch out, baby, because I think she's going to be big. And, well, that's terrific. I love well, that. Well, okay, look at the whole stable of writers that came out of. Uh, Marion Zimmer, Bradley, Sword and Sorceress. A lot of those were fanfic writers or friends or just, you know, little little people who who started out writing, you know, in her universe. And then some of them have become very well-paid, well-recognized writers. Uh, starting out, starting out basically with training wheels. Shout, shout out to Mercedes Lackey here and all respect to her. Ah, yes, that's a good one. Um, I think about time. Amanda Hawking, too. Amanda Hawking. Mm-hmm. Amanda Hawking. Yep, she she became literally a millionaire after she sold on her own um, a million copies of her books online through social media networks. Of course, now Amazon and Barnes Noble have changed their, uh, have changed what they do, so you can only, if you upload to Amazon, you can't upload to Barnes and Noble because Barnes and Noble won't sell your your book. Yeah, so because they've got an exclusivity house. thing, they don't. Right. Yeah. So, so you cannot be there. Will not be any more Amanda Hawkins because of that. Well, uh, yeah, but you do that with any publisher. If you publish with, you know, a book with, you know, Tor Books, you're not going to be selling the same book to Bain. I mean, this is not new. No, but it is new in terms of e ebook publishing because they really weren't being published um, when you do that with like you're saying like a publisher like for instance Wiley Wiley will publish Twilight and Philosophy and it's not going to be published by anybody else because Wiley is printing the copies Wiley is putting up all mm-hmm. kinds of money up front it took us you know team of editors and <laughs> lots of writers mm-hmm. to make it happen and then to get the foreign rights deals and things like that so that's why it's exclusive to Wiley but with, with an ebook it's simply the author creating a manuscript and then uploading it herself or himself to Amazon, to Barnes & Noble. So ultimately, it's their product. And just like Wiley, who can sell with Barnes & Noble, but can also sell, I mean, ultimately, the author, when they're self-published like that with eBooks, they're their own publisher. So why can't they, like Wiley, like 
you know, Norton, WW Norton, like, you know, St. Martin's, like any of these big publishers, Random House, why can't they be sold by both Barnes & Noble and Amazon? But well, I think Barnes & Noble and Amazon have become the publishers in this case. And they won't play with that's, their, that's their claim, but they didn't work on the book at all. They just I didn't I didn't invent well, there it's it's But that seems to be how it's there, yeah. They're the out. distribution channel. But I think the 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 greater point here is that uh uh that the the new content creators, the new creators of our modern mythology are not uh, coming from on high. It's not something that's being orchestrated by uh, by the by the big masters of media, because those masters of media are coming up from the ranks. Uh, they are they are doing their fan fiction and developing their their fan base and their readership, and then they're starting their original work and bringing their fan base with them. So they're they're sort of they're the Big creators of the future are not, uh, you know, they're not grandmasters to start with. They're coming up. They're coming from us. We That's are the you new, and me. You and me, and and people who are listening to the show right now, who all have the the same potential of doing this, uh, of performing this little bit of magic, and uh, so we're in a position to guide and define where our new modern mythology comes from. And I, th- I find this an absolutely thrilling notion, in part because I want to be part of it. <laughs> I think you're right, and, and that's the cool part of it. I mean, you're absolutely right. Well, when you think about um, E.L. James and, and Amanda Hawking and, you know, like you were saying, Mercedes Lackey, a lot of these people, like, you know, really did sort of come up through fan fiction. And I think that's just a fantastic thing because... Ultimately, a lot of these voices are female voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was working with Fiona Paul in St. Louis at the St. Louis Comic Con, and she does um, a great book series, a young adult book series. Um, and, uh, you know, she's really doing well. And wouldn't it be great if, if her series ended up becoming a film, you know, or something like that? So with, with female characters, strong female characters, and, uh, you know, that would be great. I think that I would we need thinking... strong female characters in young adult literature because that's where women come from. Exactly. <laughs> and and I was thinking about beautiful creatures, um, that adaptation that just didn't do well, right? Because yeah. unlike it was supposed to be the next Twilight, um, that's how it was billed, and they put a ton of money into advertising for that film, and it just bombed at the box office. Well, they could have put a ton of money into writing it too. I mean, <laughs> come on. Well, Oops. it was based on a book series. I, I think that that book series was New York Times bestseller list. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, oh, you mean the script? Yeah, I was about to say, it has to be a good movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and ultimately, when you think about the Twilight movies, I don't know if you're a fan of them or not, but uh, they were not good scripts. <laughs> Um, they were not good movies. They had no, they had an appeal that got people got butts into the seats. I don't, yeah, I don't know what I do not the, know what it was. The only was reason I did not fling it. the first I tried to read Twilight. The only reason I did not fling it across the room is I did not want to break my Kindle. Okay, <laughs> but I gave it a chance. I don't just I'm not a hater. You know I'm not a hater either. I love Stephanie Meyer mainly because you know she created this terrific thing that allowed people to get interested in in reading again. 
but it is a little bit on the dangerous side in terms of the gender roles that she presents and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, things along those lines. But ultimately, it's, it was a popular movie, not because it was a, a really well-done movie or, you know, the acting was so terrific. I mean, you know, I love you, Taylor Lautner. I love you, Kristen. I love you, Rob. But, you know, let's face it, it was not... Uh, we're not talking about any winning any winning performances here. No, but at least they clearly read the book first, which I always appreciate. Always a good thing. <laughs> but the, I think the thing that made it so popular was that it was uh, an unabashed Mary Sue. You know, I mean, it's it wasn't it's, trying uh, to be. It wasn't trying to be freaking Kane, was it? No, not really. Uh, it was. Uh, it was what it was. It was unapologetically wish fulfillment fantasy. And, and that's really what uh, the female audience ate up um and and that's part of what you know what we were talking about why isn't it's not i mean i, I wish i could say it were just because of you know male writers and a male-oriented society i mean i suppose it is ultimately goes back to that but the female audience they're not buying the the strong female characters they they want the girl who who literally has to die to live um who has to change herself completely to be with the bad boy. Well, uh, Isis has to come back from the underworld. Uh, well, yeah, sooner yeah. or later, she's got to come yeah. back. Well, let's let us hope. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Rebecca Housel, uh, where are you going to be? Uh, let's see, this is airing June 8th. Where are you going to be next? Dr. Rebecca Housel, the pop culture professor, thank you so much for joining us for the June 8th episode of The Event Horizon here on Krypton Radio. It was a real pleasure having you on the show. Uh, this has been one of the more enlightening and entertaining conversations we've had in a long time. Well, I want to thank you both, too. I mean, I really appreciate it for me as well. I mean, I feel like, you know, I could go on forever with you two. We should, we should continue the conversation. We will. We show. will. When you come back to town, we will do a live session how's that and that would be really fun i would love that i thank you guys so much it was really wonderful would you be would you be open to uh, appearing on the show again at, at a future date of course i i would love to um this was wonderful i i would love it excellent it's time to push the button it's time to push the button already hey rebecca you want to push the button i do okay we, push we've the got button. the special remote control button uh do you have See it on it? the it's desktop right there. i've got it okay push the button I'm pushing the button. You have just heard episode 16 of The Event Horizon for June 8th, 2013. Our guest this week has been Dr. Rebecca Housel, the pop culture professor. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio General Manager Gene Turnbow and executive producer Susan Fox. This episode will air again Sunday, June 9th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by acclaimed fan artist Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by Christopher B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Christine Cherry. And the role of the captain was played by science fiction writer and legend Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2013 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. Stay tuned for tonight's episode of X-1. Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.